welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with episode 239 and my conversation with the marketing development specialist at Yamaha Corporation, Joel Tetzlaff. We'll get to him shortly. The personal news to report is that I was able to get Pfizer vaccine number two last Thursday, which fortunately for both my wife and myself didn't result in any real symptomatic backlash or expected sickness. I hope that if or when you are able to get fully vaccinated, you are able to do so without it completely knocking you out for a couple of days, as I know it has for some of my friends. School-wise, we're at the super busy close to the semester which is pretty normal for the end of April. Lots of end of year performances and grading and meetings. And oh my gosh, I already, I already hear you yawning and turning the podcast off. Come, come back, come back, come back. Okay, let's move on and get to our interview with Joel Tetzlaff. I think you'll get a sense pretty immediately that Joel is fired up about his work with Yamaha. He's a self-described gearhead who is very passionate about the products and services that Yamaha offers, as well as being very well-versed on the extensive history of the company. He also has experience as a performer and educator, which we will also get into. Before we get to the interview, just a note about the audio. Unfortunately, I made a mistake in my transmission of the audio from Zoom over to my editing, so you are going to hear the backup audio on this particular podcast. So just be aware that some of the balance between the two of us won't be as good as it normally is. Hopefully you will allow it to work and enjoy. So we recorded this interview over Zoom Again, with the backup on April 9th, 2021, and it begins right now. And then I know a lot of people, uh, I mean, I've known Dave Gerhart for a while. Um, I've I've had, um, I had him and and Heather Mansell on the show last year before PASIC, um, and I'd had Dave on before that, but... um, so I've I've definitely known other people in the organization, but you know, not with much knowledge as to who actually interacts with whom, you know, <laughs> on, on those things. With a large company, I mean, who knows? And I, and obviously now, who knows where people are actually yeah. living versus where are they working? Yeah, it is interesting. With, within the company, we've gone through a lot of change. We're 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 trying to be more dynamic with our, you know, uh, Yamaha was very segmented in the sec- sense that you know there was just you know banner orchestral was kind of this division that did the school service music dealers and, and the education side of things, and then we had our combo section that we do more of the rock and roll stuff and. Our customers don't really think about us that way. And I think our new customer, the people that we're looking at that are growing up in this world too, they think of Yamaha as Yamaha, you know, and then of course you can't really go to get the same, you know, you can't get a musical instrument in a boat in the same place. That's probably okay for now, <laughs> but um, it's, it's a brand, you know, and we're, we're trying to be more dynamic with that. And, and I think percussion has always suffered from 
you can go and buy a drum set and then you can buy a marimba, but you might not be able to assemble them for that marimba because that's a different division and no one cares. You know, that's not how people think of us. So it'd be like going into an Apple store and saying, you can buy an iPhone here, but you can't get a computer. Like, well, that doesn't. <laughs> so we're trying to be more dynamic with that, but it's a, it's a challenge. And we've, um, you know, even internally, sometimes I find myself, who, who does that now? You know, so we've, we've had a lot of change here, but again, it's about growth and it's about change and, and being more dynamic with our customers and artists and all that kind of stuff too. So it's a, it's, it's a, it's a process. Um, big company, gotcha. like you say, um, not as, not as big as some people think. I, I think it's not a, a GM Chrysler kind of thing. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. We, we, we can't say that we lost a billion dollars in a quarter and say we're still in business. I mean, that's, that's not going to happen here, you know? Um, but in the same sense of having the breadth of product that we do with the AV stuff for the motorcycles and the marine vehicles, and it's, it's a, it's a cool company cause it's diverse and that, that does help us, I think, um, focus on what helps our customers more so than just trying to sell things, you know, or just stay in business kind of thing. So. We were talking to an artist of ours, David Garibaldi, and he is a, an incredible musician and just a, an innovator to me in terms of the style and the things that oh, he yeah. does. And um, he was talking to myself and Daryl Anderson, who is a drum designer that works here in the States, and, and we were chatting about – we were on an innovation segment that we were doing for drum sets, and he was chatting about how – um, he said, wow, I think you guys are really successful. And I, I kind of stopped him. I, I didn't stop him, but I was just like, wow, you know, I, I really look like I haven't I've kind of failed, right? Because my goal was to be a player. You know, I always wanted to be a drummer on tour, whether it was Tower Power or Van Halen or whatever. You know, I just wanted to be a performer. And I look as though I kind of took another road. And he said to Daryl and I, because Daryl and I both feel that way a little bit. He said, yeah, but how many people do what you do? And I kind of looked around and I said, well, there's, you know, there's, there's a guy from these different companies and there's, he's like, yeah, but even that's probably more, you know, there's less people doing that than there are playing drums for a living. And, uh, kind of made me aware of how, I mean, I always feel very fortunate to work around musician and music and just even to meet David Garibaldi, an incredible soul and person. I mean, just like, gosh, talk about a human being you want to be around. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, you know, appreciate what you're doing for a living and helping people make music is, is, um, you know, we're not selling dangerous products or something that, you know, harms the environment or anything like that. So we're very fortunate in that way. And I think that's a, that's always something that I forget of maybe a little bit of just cause I'm working on spreadsheets and emails too, you know, so it's, it's a job, you know, but, yeah. um, so yeah, maybe we can bring some of that to light. And I think that's the, the human aspect of this is some, something that I take very personally because again, yes, it's my career and it's a job and all those kind of things too, but I want to help people and, and there's just some people that maybe don't like Yamaha and that's okay too. Uh, but I, I think if you look at Yamaha from a bigger picture of like what we're trying to do, I think it's a very human thing. You know, uh, the company believes in music and that's a pretty cool thing. The company over the last year and yeah. the changes and all of the things that have had to, ha have had to happen just so that you can all stay in business or yeah. pivot to the ways that you've needed to pivot. Well, in speaking to the last year with business, it's, you know, it's been a challenge for all of us. It's our dealers, our artists, um, even us as a company having to work at home. Um, although I think we've gotten a pretty good groove with that. Um, yeah, the, the challenge was too, I think from an education standpoint, and you've probably experienced this yourself too, is, is how to do some of these things, you know, virtually. And, and, um, we, 
we had a number of artists. We have some incredible tools in this company in terms of audio gear and things to help you mic a drum set and all sorts of cool. The EAD-10 is a perfect example. This little box you attach to the bass drum hoop and you can mic your drum set. You know, I mean, it's the acoustic drum set. That's pretty cool. Uh, and then it has a USB stereo out. So you can actually just stream that into a computer and now teach lessons with it, which is really cool. But for our educators, you know, it was a big challenge because they are – their craft is teaching and playing musical instruments, not – you know, using a switcher and videos and zoom. And so it, we had, we were, we were basically becoming a resource to help them, you know, get over that technology gap. Um, and some of them were more astute to doing it than others, but it did then open up maybe a new opportunity for them to not just teach people in their region, but maybe open up the lessons to other people across the country that might want to study with them. So I think as, as much as this year has been a challenge, there have been some things we've learned about. One, working in this environment, our company has become much more dynamic with uh, working at home and then having meetings you know, uh, uh, through the, the virtual world. Um, and then doing more to uh, create visuals. So, for instance, we didn't go to PASIC this year, but we created videos on these new products. And we did a really cool um, session kind of like this where you got you were able to meet the Yamaha team and they were able to ask us questions in the chat. It was really kind of fun because we um, – again, I think from the human standpoint of this, we really – we love talking about drums and percussion, you know. So it's it's an opportunity for us to really show what I call personality to the company. Um, you know, there's a lot of people. There's a team of people that work to make great Yamaha instruments all over the world and market those products. Um, but the, I think the individuals that help people find the right instrument or at least um, – help improve what we're doing on a daily yearly basis um, is, is, is really obviously a very human experience. And we want to make sure that that, that is translated to people because at the end of the day, a musical instrument is a very intimate relationship we have, right? You know, I mean, a horn maybe more so than a marimba, right? <laughs> You're going to blow air into this thing compared to actually playing it with mallets is a little bit different, but that relationship that people have with that musical instrument uh, is very important to us. And we want them to have a good experience because that means they're going to be playing music longer. And of course, that's a better business model for us to say the lifetime value of a customer is much more valuable than just selling them, you know, uh, an inexpensive drum set at first and then they quit. That's not a good experience for them. And that's not good for us and even education in that matter, too. Um, being dynamic with the artist relations side of things, you know, the, the touring drummers that have been kind of sidelined, this has been a really tough situation for them. Um, fortunately, most of our artists are, are teachers and ed well-educated, you know, drummers that were able to augment their, um, you know, their income and things like that through education and find different ways to engage music that way. So um, it's changed, I think, you know, my perception of how cool is it that we can have a group of people come to PASIC and visit with us and, and do that. But of course, it's a loud environment. It's hard to hear our percussion instruments, you know, like, hey, can you hear the nuance of that marimba or chime? No, not really, because it's a loud room. It really gave us a chance to maybe augment the way we're approaching some of those activities to, to create a video beforehand so people can hear and see things for themselves and then come and experience it at the show. I think that's a great thing that we've learned from this. And then also, I, I think not having to do so many things hand on, hands on, you know, it's great. We have this huge booth, you know, with all these products at NAM and all that kind of stuff too, but wouldn't it be cool if we had more performances with these new instruments as maybe less real estate taken up with all this huge display. So that's the kind of things we're looking at now. And I think it's made us think a little bit differently about even travel. You know, how much can we do virtually with our dealers in terms of training? 
it's been a huge asset. We have a guy by the name of Jim Haler. He he does a lot of dealer training, and he's done an excellent job of augmenting his presentations to you know something he would actually fly in and, and train our dealers on. You know what's the difference between Yamaha and, and and what makes us unique? What makes a Yamaha Yamaha is kind of what we usually talk about. But um, he's done a great job of augmenting that into a presentation that he can do live and answer questions. And um, it's harder because we can't read the room. We can't see what people are thinking. We don't really get the reaction or like, wow, that's cool. Uh, like you might if we did things in person, but we're able to at least still do that and maybe more of it because we're not paying for the travel, you know. So there's I think there's a way we've really become dynamic in this last year. And I give I give a lot of credit to our educators, whether they are teaching music or just, you know, basic middle school math. You know, it's it's an incredible environment that they've had to endure. And I, I think the innovation of us as, as a country and, and human beings has, has come out now that we've really seen some some challenge, but ways to deal with it. And technology, frankly, is pretty cool that it's helped us in the way it has. Before I get into uh, some of the questions about, or some of the things I was going to ask you about, the differences in you, uh, what happens at specific conferences, because I know that that, that is that you you cater to different audiences as as those things happen. Mm-hmm. But but to, just give me a summation of what your position is at Yamaha and what you tend to do on a regular basis. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm a marketing development specialist. Okay. Um, it, it's a, a pretty good catch-all, you know, between drums and percussion. So yep. meaning, you know, drum sets, DTX products, and then percussion, meaning marching and tune percussion. Um, it, it, it encapsulates a lot. Um, a lot of things that I, in the last year, really worked on because of the virtual environment is our show presence. Um, it's very important as education and the educational market is an extremely important uh, priority to Yamaha because that is one way to engage a, a large group of people that are just learning how to play music and have an experience with our, our products. Um, it started very early on when we started doing band instruments that um, there were some leaders of Yamaha at the time that thought that, you know, the recorders and, and making sure that students have an experience with our brand right from the very get-go, uh, beginning with music, and then uh, it turned into a piano labs and all sorts of other musical instruments that we uh, designed and, and crafted to help, you know, uh, bring people closer to music, you know, enrich their lives through music. You know, that's one of the things that our goal is. That's why we're here. And it's interesting because because if you take uh, the origins of the company being Japanese, it, in, in Japan, there are some, you know, uh, fundamental music classes that you'll take at the beginning. But if you really want to be a musician, you might go to a special school. We're, we're very fortunate here in the United States to have um, school music programs, even in the public schools. That's a huge, huge thing. And uh, our counterparts in Japan realize that very early on that this is a wow Music is great for people. You know, they that's the philosophy of the company. And if we can have an opportunity to influence that with with our presence, that was the goal. Um, so, you know, being involved with our local educator shows that we would attend on the local basis, uh, at least having some virtual presence there, uh, still supporting organizations like PASIC and NAM and all these other organizations that put on shows, we wanted to have a strong presence because we, we support those organizations, those organizations because that's our philosophy, that that is, that is bringing more people in to the, to the musical realm or in, 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 you know, bringing them in to experience music. So, um, in, you know, basic, 
is one of those things. What a great community of educators and people to to be around, but it doesn't have as much of a public flair. You know, you're not. It's not like an auto show where you would bring. You know, just let's put a bunch of cars on a floor and then everybody comes. It's accessible for anyone, right? Um, so we're looking at NAM and these other organizations to make that more accessible to people that might be interested in music or not really haven't experienced music from the playing side or performing side yet. Um, to really kind of come and check it out and, and to make it more of that, you know, not just a musician show, but a generalist, you know, like to, to like look at all these cool things and jobs that are in our industry, all this opportunity to make music now. I mean, it's not just black and white keys. There's there's these little pads with colored pads and things like that to make music now. So it's I think music is much more accessible. And I think our company is really working to be more dynamic with that at the show level and, um, you know, the virtual level of the YouTubers and all that kind of stuff, too, which is what a cool thing. I used to have to drag my drum set out of the basement to, so my friends would know I played drums. You know, now it's like I can I can post something on YouTube and a million people can see you play your drums. You know, <laughs> So what a cool thing. Uh, the other thing we're always working on is, you know, from a day to day, there's a lot of email, consumer emails, uh, maybe parts questions, things like that, that we get from our dealers and from our consumers. We're always trying to make sure that they have the right things to help them make sure that their instruments are running correctly. As you know, percussion instruments, uh, we hit them with a stick. So something's going to happen after a while, you know, or we, we try and transport them. Drum Corps is a great example of like, we want to take these marimbas and drive them all over the country. And it's not the perfect example of, uh, or not the perfect environment for a marimba or a vibraphone, but they do that. And of course there's parts needs and issues that we come across there. So we're always trying to help our customers and dealers with that. Um, we're trying to come up with better ways to uh, market our products and get more people to see and experience them, uh, not just at a show, but we're talking about the website now is like, how do we get more people to hear what we're doing? And we created a really cool site for drum sets called Find Your Backbeat. And Find Your Backbeat is actually a great site where you can actually take, we had a drummer just kind of play the same thing on each snare drum and you can now hear them side by side because a lot of times we see these videos and it's like 10 snare drums in a row and you're like, oh, I want to hear the first one and the last one. And it's hard to compare that, you know, as a human being. So we've actually taken these videos and spliced them together so you can just compare these two drums. And we need to do more of that. You know, it needs to be more like, what am I getting? A, you know, why do I want a hammered timpani bowl or, or just a smooth timpani bowl? You know, those kind of things. So we're really working on that as a marketing initiative now to, to make it more obvious or at least to help people decide what the right product is. And that's really the goal of a marketing product specialist is really to be innovative in marketing, you know, and, and, and change the way we're looking at doing things, uh, you know, even drum sets, it used to be you'd have a showroom full of drums. Um, and there's still some great dealers that do that. But the reality is that online experience is almost the first gateway, the first entry we have to seeing what's new. And then going and experiencing it at a dealer is that second step now. So we're trying to augment that experience online to really make it easier for people to um, to access things, hear things. And then we also know that, especially in percussion, beginning students is, is a big market, um, but they're, they're not the purchase, they're not the decision makers of that purchase. So right. making parents feel comfortable through our blog with how do you pick the right instrument for your student or what's, what, what are you looking for when you're looking at a percussion instrument or a trumpet or a trombone or whatever it may be? You know, uh, uh, we have a great tool. You know, what kind of piano do you want to look at? Do you want the, the, the student to practice silently like with a, cl a clavinova or do you want them just to have an upright, you know, because you have a big house and maybe you have a studio. So whatever it may be, but we're, we're really trying to find more ways to, 
to help customers find the right product, enjoy music, and then experience it um, to a, to a, another level. And then hopefully we have that another product that they want to invest in later on that maybe is a step up. Um, so that's that's kind of my job in a nutshell. I will say there's a lot of PowerPoint emails, spreadsheets, uh, Word documents, you know, <laughs> writing copy and, and um, trying to figure out if, for instance, priceless, you know, just, you know, how much can we can we charge? Um, uh, what, you know, what is our competition doing? There's a lot of study of that as well uh, that, that happens at the marketing level. So hopefully that sounds exciting. <laughs> it just, it's just, just has to be exciting to you. I think at the end of the day, if I was working with widgets, you know, just something I didn't care about, it, I, I wouldn't be that concerned about uh, the price list. I wouldn't be that concerned about people's experience. You know, for me, I'm a drummer, I'm a percussionist, I'm a musician. And I think that's the mistake a lot of people maybe make or consider when they think of our brand, maybe, or even people that work for Yamaha, they think that we're just marketing people with no experience. We're not drummers. And that it's really the opposite. A lot of us are players and we still play today, even gigs, you know, here and there. So, um, it's important to us personally and professionally. It's 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 a, a level of care, and we, we consider this a craft of trying to help f- people find the right music uh, or musical instruments is 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 a, a tool and, and helpful too, uh, because we we know having the bad experience with a musical instrument, it's not the right fit, or it's not the right thing, or it's too heavy, or whatever it might be, is not that's not fun either for us. As as you know, if we are if we look at that as a consumer, so we want to adjust and make sure that's the right fit too. So. Yeah. But yeah, uh, being a drummer helps. Um, you know, if if you're just worried about the marketing side of it and you don't really understand the the, the drumming, the, the personal relationship you have with those musical instruments, I, th- I think it'd be really tough to market this stuff. You know, and and um, well, you know, it's thing. here's the thing that's interesting about that is I had um, Keith Aleo was on. You know, you might know Keith, but um, sure, yeah, yeah. Keith uh, has had a relationship with uh, Big Firth and Zildjian, you know, on and off uh, for a while. But he said, you know, I can learn. One of the things that he said was that, and this gets to your drum set point, is that I can learn how to market. You have the, but you like you, Joel, already have the passion for drums, so that part is done. But you know, yeah. like, like the the business aspect. You, you can read a few books and, and, and take some notes and do a few reps and figure this out. Yeah. I can't give you the passion. So, but no. uh, you can do the other thing. Yeah. And I, I think there's a, a great deal of marketing people that, that talk about passion, but don't really understand, you know, that, that of course we want to convey passion. Right. Um, and, you know, we look to other brands as well. I mean, not in the music industry per se, but other brands that um, really convey passion and it's not really just about the product, but it's about life. You know, it's it's about, you know, we are human beings. How cool is it that human beings can play things together and make music as a team? And I recently had a, um, I was at the the beach with some kids and this this uh, this gentleman that I was kind of just chatting with. His, he has two daughters and his daughter is a, she plays French horn in the band here in our community. And he was just kind of saying, you know, we were talking about sports and all these other things and about, you know, raising kids and all that kind of stuff. And that's, you know, that's a job in and of itself, of course. But um, the, 
the thing that he brought to my attention, I've always known this, but the thought, the thing that he was bringing to my attention is that how inclusive music is that, you know, if, if she's in the marching band, it's, it's not a girl's marching band and a boy's marching band as it would be girls and boys soccer or whatever sport, you know, it's not segmented like that. And I think that inclusion and that inclusiveness of music and growing up around people of all diversities, um, you know, from all over the world, uh, having March drum corps and all those kind of things too, um, you start to really take, you know, as human beings, how cool is it that we can work together as human beings of all age groups, uh, no matter what, you know, your um, sexuality is or whatever it may be, all of those things, just putting people onto a field or into an orchestra or wherever it may be and having them make music together, that's something uniquely human. Uh, there's really nothing else on earth that can do that, you know, and uh, I, I always look at that as kind of this... You know, we're pretty fortunate. I It's funny because I, I, I work with our drum corps um, for several years on getting back into that. And they um, from the instructor level, and I, I assume you have this passion too of being critical of what's what's going well and what's not. And, and a coach is the same way. You know, the team wins the game, but he's the, the coach isn't happy with that performance because they didn't do the things they wanted to do. And as musicians, I think sometimes we're looking very myopic at that performance. It's like, you know what? We could have done so much better if we'd done X, Y, and Z. And if you just stand back from that, if you just watch what we're doing as human beings, that's a pretty incredible experience. We have to sometimes, I think, look too that people sometimes aren't great musicians. But they enjoy playing. And I think that's the thing that um, if you're familiar with Remo Belli, he was uh, the creator of Remo Drumheads. And he once said to me, you know, if, you're, if you're, your child goes and plays soccer, do you expect them to go to the World Cup tomorrow? And it's like, no. He said the problem sometimes with music is we, you know, a parent will look at someone playing music and they'll say, well, what are you going to do with that? Well, <laughs> not everybody that enjoys playing music makes platinum records and, and is famous, you know, and that's okay, you know, but we, we sometimes, I think, compartmentalize that experience as, what are you going to do with music? Um, and, you know, music sometimes has a bad reputation unto itself, too, because of rock and roll and some other things <laughs> that go on out there. But, I mean, the, the truth to me, the, the, the bigger picture that I'm starting to see um, is really how cool is it that we have this experience as human beings and, and to open that up and make that more accessible to people is, is a, you know, it can be a challenge sometimes too. You want to have a great sounding band, you need great players, but from an education standpoint to getting those people like me, who is in public music, I had an opportunity to play music and I think it's, it's obviously changed my life. Look, at, I, I'm working for Yamaha. Um, what a great thing, you know, that's, that's a great story. So I think those are all incredible things that we need to consider, you know, on a human level. And I, I can appreciate much more having been here a long time and been focused on competitive and competition and all those kind of things. But now I look at our competition is not other brands, but maybe Xbox, you know, and some of these other things that yeah, take yeah. away from people's time to play music and enjoy it. So how do we make that more fun for them? Um, so, um, you know, things like our, our DTX drum kits have some great lessons built into them and some really cool tools to make it fun to learn how to play drums. And I think that's a great, you know, that's a that's the way our brand is looking at things too. How do we make this more fun so people want to spend more time playing drums and less time on the Xbox or whatnot? So yeah, um, certainly point. there's nothing wrong with playing Xbox and there's people, YouTubers, making a lot of money doing that now too, which is kind of fun. Um, but yeah, it's it. I think we have a challenge ahead of us. What does music look like? In three to five years, you know, is it is it is it going to be uh, the same? And I, I think that's being being dynamic with that too is something that we we constantly look at working here. Tell me about when you first how you first started working for Yamaha. 
And not only, you know, what were you doing and, and kind of your entrance into the company, but what was the company like when you started with them? Hmm, that's a great question. Um, so I was going to a school in Minnesota and they had a music business program. And as a part of that music business program, which is kind of like an education degree, I had to do a jury and stuff like that. But then all of a sudden, my third year of college, I was in the business school, you know, so I yeah. was basically getting a business admin degree on top of a music educator degree almost. Um, that's just kind of the way they had put it together. Well, I needed to do an internship to complete my degree. And I went through graduation and everything. And I finally found an internship at Yamaha and a good buddy of mine who had marched in the Madison Scouts with me and I grew up with, uh, Jeff Spanos was over there doing an internship. And he said, you know what, you should come over here and do the internship. It's a great place to work. And wait, Yamaha. and so, and this is in Michigan? Yeah, this is in Grand Rapids, okay. Michigan. Mm-hmm. And Jeff was over there. He's a good friend of mine. And, and um, he was like, man, this is such a cool experience because Yamaha does so many cool things. And it's just it's it's really eye opening. You know, it's a big part of the business and you're going to learn a lot. So I applied. And at the time, uh, a, a gentleman, Michael Skinner, is a great guy and a, a great employee of Yamaha, has his own company now, Danzer. But he was he he had looked over my resume and called me and said, "Hey, you know, we we, we think this would be a really good fit for you." And I had marched the Madison Scout, so I had a relationship with an artist, Jeff Moore, mm-hmm. and Jeff uh, recommended me. Jeff Moore recommended me, and then Jeff Spanos, who was working there, was like, "Hey, Joel's a good guy, so he'd love to do this." Um, so I went over there, and my perception this is this is a great. I share this with a lot of people because my perception of Yamaha was again just it's robots marketing people, and there's no love, there's no affection for these things. They just make stuff, right? You know. And when I got there, um, God, it was, you know, Yamaha at the time, I would call more of a company, not a corporation okay. so much. Um, it was just more, it just felt smaller and you yep. knew the people in Japan, you knew the people, right. you know, you just, it was just a smaller entity. And we maybe hadn't been so corporate in the sense that when, when companies get bigger, they, they have to protect themselves. And, and people do, you know, unfortunately, people take advantage of things that, the company doesn't realize that people are going to take advantage of and that that happened. Um, and so that, you know, there's more rules in place and more things that they, you know, try and help and, um, hiring practices change and all that kind of stuff. So I, I felt it was more of a family and more of a company back then. Um, and, and nothing against the way it is now. I mean, I think we, we have a great job and we're, we're very well taken care of and all those good things too. But, um, when I went there, I, I really meeting the people and Dave Psyche, who was a, you know, he came over from Slingerland and Deegan was, he was working in warranty at the time. He's the guy you could call on. He'd just be like, um, I have this thing with my bass drum hoop. Oh, yeah, you need that little pad that goes on the bottom. I'll send you one tomorrow. You know, he knew before you could even get the question out, like what you needed. He was that guy. And I, you could just absorb all that as an employee. I worked with an incredible gentleman by the name of Steve Anzavino, who kind of mentored me into drums and percussion uh, during my internship. And then after my internship, it was uh, kind of the holiday break. Everybody went to Midwest, um, all the employees in the office. So I was just kind of sitting there finishing up my internship and kind of left. And that was the end of it. And then I got a call uh, a couple weeks later. They're like, hey, we're really looking for somebody to fill this position in accessories. During my internship, it was pretty funny, too, because I was there and drum sets were in the B&O division and they actually ended up moving into California. And that's when I met uh, Joe Testa, Dave Jewell and a couple other people, too. It was pretty funny. So they they actually took drum sets out to California and I we, we just became the educational percussion under B&O. And uh, because I had the marching relationships and like that, it, it worked out really well. I, I knew a few people. I worked my way in accessories and I worked into percussion accessories and eventually percussion. And then we were just getting our rears 
handed to us in the marketplace in terms of marching percussion. And I was like, gosh, that doesn't seem right. You know, we have some, we had the scouts and we had the Cavaliers on board at the time. It just didn't seem like we were getting anything out of it. We didn't have a great relationship with it. It wasn't, it was just not a, it just felt like it wasn't a good relationship, right? You know, so kind of when things aren't going that way, I just started to stick my nose into things and and uh, started to build kind of some of these relationships with the colleges and universities by traveling, um, visiting the drum corps and really starting to, um, uh, you know, uh, build that kind of like what what do they need and what are we doing and what do we need to do and what can we how can we change? And at the time in Japan, there was a guy by the name of Joey Okamura. And Joey's son, um, Yuki Masa is his real name, but we call him Joey. He he came over and we would just, uh, his English was pretty rough and I can't speak Japanese. So it was kind of one of those things we would draw things on napkins and we would talk about like what do the next drums look like. And um, really the 8200 series came off of that napkin because we had the core custom lug, which had these little arches in it. I was like, that'd be perfect for a bass drum. And let's talk about the arch and the, the lug, you know, kind of moving some of the mass off the shelf for the toms because we can kind of open them up. And man, he was just, he's just brilliant, you know, but they, they just really wanted to innovate the drums and they, we started to take it to the next level. Of course, when I was there, we lost the Blue Devils and that's after Fred Sanford had passed away. Oh, gosh, it was, it was so tough because we lost Fred, who was just a hero in the marching activity. And then the Blue Devils were just, that was, he was kind of the relationship holder for that. So that just wasn't working out. And our management at the time didn't really agree with it and wasn't really a fan of drum corps at the time. Of course, drums were just the only thing in drum corps. Everything else is bugles. So in, we started a relationship with the cadets when the B-flat instruments came out. And that changed the whole dynamic with the management of like, wow, now we have B-flat instruments. We can actually work with the drum corps. And that translates into what the kids are using in the band room. So there was a whole dynamic shift there when that started to happen. And we, we started working with the cadets and I started working with Tom and Neil and uh, it, they were one of the groups that were like, we need a four octave marimba. We need this. We need, we want maple drums, not birch and blah, blah, blah. And we had been experimenting with all sorts of things, but they were one of the groups that we just started working with. And then things started to click. You know, we just started to say, yeah, we could do this. The fr- the multi-frames were, were partially designed with the Cavaliers and the, the Scouts and the Cadets. And it just became this like all the things we were doing just started to make sense. And um, so that was kind of my career in Grand Rapids. And then they said, hey, we're going to move to California. And I did that. I was one of the few people from Grand Rapids that actually moved out there. And then we just had a whole new support staff that was kind of already in place there. So um that changed the dynamic because I would actually go to Michigan or Michigan state to visit, you know, and see the colleges, you know, from Grand Rapids, it's just a drive. Right. You know, so now I was kind of in being in Southern California, the Midwest wasn't quite as easy to get to. So, you know, it changed a little bit of uh, how we, how we worked, but, um, you know, my career, I've always found, uh, how fortunate I am to have met and to meet the people I get to meet the, the, uh, the Tom Monks and Neil Larvies uh, of the world who are not super forgiving East Coast kind of guys, you know, were pretty hard on it at first. But then after a while, you just started to go like, hey, man, I, I want to make this better. So let's work together. And they were, I have to say, they were some of the most professional guys that, you know, I, you know, them and of course, a Brett Kuhn and a Jeff Moore and some of these uh, uh, Eric Johnson, who was working with the Cavaliers at the time. I mean, how many cool people I got to work with and just help develop my career, but also what Yamaha was doing. But then as we got out to California, things were a little bit more marketing focused and we had to kind of change a little bit of how we work. Uh, so we were a little less, less hands-on, but I still think we, we still had the care and the tact. And then as, as the company changed a little bit, so did the relationships with um, 
our, our friends in Japan, we still have very tight relationships with the designers over there. Um, they're really the conduit from the what we're looking for and, and, and how music is changing to how Yamaha can be dynamic with that. And that's always changing too. So that's, that's tough. You know, it doesn't take us just a day to develop a new thing. You know, it's years of research and development. So we have to kind of figure out where it is and where it's going. It's kind of like that um, pursuit angle, you know, <laughs> you can run to where the player is, but they're going to be over there by the time you get there. So in, in marketing and in, in de marketing development, uh, product development, we have to be that kind of taking that angle of where it's going rather than where it is. Right. Um, and that's, that's tough. So, but um I think my job through the years has always gone from helping to, you know, be the conduit between the players and the, the instruments and, and helping Japan understand that dynamic. And then also um, trying to help myself, like how can we better serve that market or how can we better help the dealer make it easier for them to write a bid or, you know, find the price that they need or whatever it is. We're always trying to help that process along. So, um, but as the companies change, um, you know, I'm older too. So, you know, <laughs> um, with age comes wisdom. So sometimes you, you're doing things and you're like, why am I doing this? You know, and that became kind of reality for me. I'm not young anymore. I can't just go out and chase drum corps around. So we have to, we have to find ways to work smarter. And that's companies trying to help us do that. Uh, but it's, it's always, it's always a challenge. There's not a lot of people working percussion to kind of help out. So we're, we're trying to make that easier for people to work with us and us, you know, easier for us to help them uh, quickly. So that's, that's one of the challenges you face, you know, as you, now we have more drum corps. We have the blue coats, the cadets, uh, blue stars, um, Boston crusaders, you know, I, there's, there's nine in total. Of course, the Madison scouts are first drum corps ever, you know, is, is, is still with us. And how lucky are we, that's a, how, how cool is that? That's a great relationship right there. So, um, and the Cavaliers, of course, one of the premier organizations out there as well. It's just, we're very fortunate to have all that, but it's, it's not less, it's more. <laughs> so, um, that takes a lot of time. Uh, drum corps is like our, uh, I, I equate it to the Moto GP, you know, Yamaha has these racing bikes that go around the track at hundreds of miles an hour. And, um, you know, for drum corps, that's really, we, we could put a marimba out for one season and that's probably about nine seasons or eight seasons in a marching band, the average high school marching band. Right. So it really does allow us to get an accelerated test on everything, which is cool. So, yeah. When you all go to these different conferences, what's kind of the, this is backtracking a bit, but, but when you go to like a PASIC versus a Midwest versus a NAM versus maybe like a, you know, a, like Chicago drum show or some other like event like that. What are the different goals that, that you have that Yamaha has at these different events? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough question. I, I think it really comes down for us is, is being visible, um, being a supporter and is also, I, 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 especially the, our percussion and drum community, it's relationships. I mean, we're, you know, it, it's very different being in the guitar business than the drum business. Sure. You know, uh, we have a very personal relationship with a lot of educators, with a lot of, uh, you know, and the, the thing that you, being my age now, is you see a lot of those students that were marching to drum corps or in that percussion ensemble are now teaching right. <laughs> and right. now doctors, you know, and you're like, wow, I remember, you know, they were, you know, much younger and yeah. uh, I'm not, I'm not any younger either, but that's the kind of thing. Um, I've often thought that if somebody meets somebody from Yamaha, uh, and there's a lot of us, I'm not the only person, but if somebody meets somebody from Yamaha, what, what's the lasting impression? And it's just like, uh, kind and we care about what's going on and, and we genuinely want to, um, 
want to, you know, find ways to help. You know, we, 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 we don't run a charity. We can't just give things away. Um, we don't really have endorsements per se. I mean, drum corps have endorsements, but it's, it's really, you know, have, how do you uh, make sure that when, when people, I think that personal relationship, when you show somebody a marimba, for instance, a show, or you tell them that this is, this is why we developed it this way. What makes a Yamaha? A Yamaha is one of the things I think that's the most powerful thing we can share with people because it isn't just a, it's not just something we, we throw together. Uh, a marimba takes, uh, one, the bars take years to develop. Uh, the tuning of the bars is just a, you know, you have a rough tuning and then you go into the marimba. And now when you voice it, it takes hours to put these, the, the, the voicing of a, a rosewood marimba, even an acoustic marimba, it, it takes hours and it's, it's a craft. It's, you know, so the, why do we take so much time? Why is a Yamaha more expensive than some other things too? I think that's something that, that we we want to share with people this process and the things that make the instruments unique so that they understand that um, when they buy that instrument, we're not just hoping it lasts a couple of years and we get a sale. It's actually, uh, as you know, a band room, things can live for uh, decades, <laughs> especially right. a set of timpani, right? You know, mm -hmm. So that experience in, in the way we build things is paramount to making something that's of high quality and consistent and that has the durability that will last throughout the lifetime of the instrument. Um, it's not very often that we talk about the life cycle or uh, of an instrument, and, and it's interesting you know, what, what is that? You know, what, if you buy a set of timpani today, how long does that sit and, and work in the band room? And that, that's a long time. Those drums aren't built to just, you know, oh, let's give them five years and then get them out of there. It's, it's a long period of time. So that the, the function, and I think Yamaha's very, you know, I, we talk about this all the time. Sometimes Yamaha looks very simple. Uh, a drum set hardware was one section where we always talk about how Yamaha just looks so very simple in, in terms of a cymbal stand or, or a set of timpani. It doesn't have a lot of gadgetry. It doesn't have these all these frills and bells and whistles. And simplicity is a part of the design to make something very easy to maintenance but also very easy to use. And um, we, we approach things that way. The design philosophy is the simplicity and quality and consistency kind of go hand in hand. If you make something that's very complicated, of course, the consistency goes down. And then the, the durability of it may be rough. And so then they, they have looked at this in so many different ways to be simplistic in the sense that it sounds great. Sound is a priority of everything we build. And if you look at what, what's the purpose of building this musical instrument, it's sound. Sound is number one. And then um, building what we call vertical integration means we're going to start from the top and we're going to work our way into the, the other models because if we can vertically integrate a feature from the top model into that student model, that means there's a better experience for those players. I could speak on, the, uh, on that simplicity thing. When I was at my previous job, we bought a, a 5100 for the, yeah. for the school. And one of the reasons I got it is because the previous – I had been a – um, I had had inner, inner uh, actions with another company's marimba that had a billion different parts and it was always yeah. a pain. And that 5100 mm -hmm. is, I think, four things, yeah. maybe five. But it was like – it was super easy to put together and uh, and I had interacted with it as a grad student too. So I, I that was one of the reasons why I got it. I was like, this is a great – this is a, it's a great instrument but it's also – it's like once I showed the students how to put it together, they were like, oh, OK. Yeah. Great. One of the heritage, you know, if we talk about Marimba's particular, mm -hmm. and I, I, I'm getting off track and I apologize. But I, this, I, I get so excited about these kind of things because it's fun to just talk about what we've done to innovate. 
And um, early on in, in Yamaha's, uh, in the career of Yamaha, we, we started building drum sets around 67. So that was kind of guitars and drums in the six, late 60s. And then percussion didn't really come around until the, the early 80s. And one of the things that happened is Keiko Abe was actually playing another brand of instrument in Japan. And one of the higher ups at the time saw Keiko perform and went, wow, this is amazing. And then she started discussing this five octave idea yep. that she had and the voicing of the instrument and all these things. And because of the craftsmanship, so if you look at the beginning of Yamaha in 1887, it's a reed organ. Uh, Torosuku Yamaha started building reed organs in 1887. The story before that is he helped repair one at a local school. And then when he built his reed organ, he had a tough time tuning it. So, you know, the tuning fork says as a part of our logo. That's actually kind of, he spent a lot of time with the tuning fork trying to figure out how to get this reed organ in tune. So that's kind of why the tuning fork is a part of that logo in history. But as we became uh, a, a company that was building pianos and all these other instruments, it was the craftsmanship, the woodworking is really kind of the heart of that, 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 that sparked this. Uh, the other side is going to be the, you know, of course, electronic organs and then transistors that we got into. So the electronic side of Yamaha had a history uh, spawning the DX7 and some of these historically incredible instruments. But the woodcrafting became a very apparent skill of, of our company. And then when they looked at making percussion instruments, that became kind of the onset. And, and Keiko Abe, who is really the founding grand person of Yamaha Percussion, period, because she had worked with our staff and our team to make this this little roll-up bass marimba to make a five-octave marimba. Right. But then the voicing of the instrument, the pure temperament, true temperament, I can't for, I forget which one it is, but um, the partials and the way the instrument is voiced, the articulation of Yamaha, which is a key across all of our products that we make, each note has to speak clearly, especially if you're talking about Keiko Abe, right? You know, some of these passages are like, it's a flurry of notes, and if each note is muddled, it doesn't have the same kind of voice uh, that she was looking for. So she really helped put that into a phase of like, this is the craft of, this is how a Yamaha is voiced. And then that became in Yamaha's world of percussion became really the standard for us. And I think it's been copied several different ways, but um, yeah. And then the, the other thing is uh, Keiko, who is, is, is fairly short in stance um, we had a very short marimba, and in, in, in Japan, the market is a little bit, maybe maybe a bit shorter. So the the lower marimba and, and vibraphones were great for our what we call our domestic market, meaning because we're a Japanese company you know, in Japan. But you know, in the United States, the players might height range was was different. So they started to innovate a height adjustment system. And if you look at marimbas and all these instruments before Yamaha, it was, it was you know, you would put it on cinder blocks. That's the only way you could raise or lower the height is take the wheels off or put it on cinder blocks. Yamaha really innovated just height adjustment systems because that, again, made music more accessible to more people. And you have a short student, we can be dynamic with that. And we have a tall student, we can be dynamic with that as well. So that was part of the, the you know, just kind of a simple thing that people don't really understand why or how we did that. Now, the, uh, truth be told, the first marimba, uh, I think the 2300 was Acoustalon, the first Acoustalon marimba, had a height adjustment system of about three inches. So it wasn't super dramatic. You know? <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't perfect, I would say. But after that, the pneumatic height adjustment system that you know with the 5100 was another innovation of making it easier for a player to adjust the height so that if you have multiple students using the same instrument in a practice room or concert hall, you could do it lickety, you know, you just take care of it in, in, a, in a moment's notice and change the height. Um, so those are the kind of things I think that make that much more accessible. Um, but getting back to your original discussion about what we're trying to do at it, it, it shows and, and things like that is really build those relationships and that confidence with Yamaha that we, 
we are here to make something that we, we hope lasts a lifetime in that relationship and those musical instruments and to, you know, I, I, I think more so, yeah, we want to, we want to sell things, you know, we're, we're here, we're a company and it's a business. Um, but more so than anything, we, we want to make sure that that customer understands, um, you know, our dedication to our craft, which is making high quality, consistent products. And then on top of that, you know, percussion is an, an incredibly interesting business if you look at it, because if you take drum sets, for instance, you know, it's pretty much a customer, uh, a person that's looking to buy a drum set. It's just one to one. Uh, if you're talking about entry level drum sets, maybe the parent is buying it for the student. If you look at percussion, we have several different customers. So you've got a band director that maybe is making purchasing decisions. Maybe the school district is in charge, or maybe the band booster is in charge of making those purchasing decisions. Then you have actually, who's the user of the product? Well, the user is actually the student. So we want them to have a good experience with that because we want them to continue in music. They might be our future band director. So, um, and then you look at, uh, you know, look at the challenges a band director has in their, you know, their portfolio of, I, I have a marching band. I need to put this on the field. I need to have a show. I need to rehearse the band. I also need to make sure that I have buses that are going to get us to the next competition. And I have to order color guard uniforms and band uniforms. And oh, by the way, the marimba is not doing so well. Now we need, a new, you know, we need a new tuba, whatever it is. So they, I mean, the business of being a band director is an extremely important part of this process. And anything we can do to help that is something we've we've looked at. And in our education department, as you've talked about with Dave Gerhardt, um, that's really something that they're trying to help, you know, with, whether it's funding, uh, finding grants or, or ways to write grants. They're really looking at those types of helps, you know, to make it easier for a band director to find the right resources to improve the experience for their students. So yeah. it, it's it's a lot. And if you talk about that, um, we, we never discount the fact that, yes, uh, the drum corps uses Yamaha. But but the people that have to live with those instruments all summer <laughs> and and I, you know, I, I can say this one to one. It's you spend a whole summer with that instrument. It's really right. kind of yours. Right. You know, and if that's not a good experience, then that's not good for for anyone, uh, including the instructors and everyone else that's making those decisions. So and we've noticed with some of our drum corps switching to Yamaha back in the day. It was such a huge recruiting tool. You know, they found themselves like these students want to come and they enjoy playing on these drums and they're used to them. And it's, you know, because uh, we have a large market share in the Scholastic area, of course, you know, where, where people are, are choosing to purchase Yamaha because of the longevity and the durability and, and the consistency of the product. So easy to work with, which is nice, too, is if you have to tune an entire set of drums and one drum can sound great and the next one sounds terrible. <laughs> it's like, now I've got five more to go. It's like, uh, so um, I've experienced it with another brand and, and you just... You have this drum that sounds incredible. The snare drum sounds incredible, and then you you go to the next one. You do the exact same thing to it, and it sounds awful. You're like, why is this? You start to understand the construction of the shell and all those things, and how important that is to creating a consistent sound. And that's a that's something that we take very seriously because we don't have time to make sure that each one is uh, timber matched or something like that. You know, it's just that's not going to happen with um, making X amount of shells a year. They have to be consistent the way we manufacture them in the, in the materials. That way, uh, you know, whether you're taking a marching drum out on the field and you've got 10 of them or five of them that you have to tune similar, or it's uh, for our artists in the uh, drum set idiom, they can take a rental kit anywhere in the world and have a 10-inch, a 12-inch, a 14 and 16 and, and tune it up and go, that's a Yamaha. And it's like being at home. Like, you know, you, you can be anywhere in the world and play a Yamaha cartridge kit and go like, you know, as long as it has some decent heads on it, it's going to sound like a Yamaha and play like a Yamaha. And that's, to me, now very familiar because I've played Yamaha for so long. But 
that's an important aspect of this business, you know, of having something that's consistent. Uh, I think a lot of people look overlook to the parts thing of like if we make a set of timpani now and we made one five years ago, the consistency of those parts is very common too because we, we can't continue to make parts forever, right? But we know those instruments are still out there for another 7, 10, 15 years. So we're very consistent in the way we, we develop new products so that we're not obsoleting everything with the new product. Uh, a great example of drum sets is our, our tom mounting system, the hex rod. We've been using the hex rod since 1974, and all those different uh, iterations of the actual mount on the drum, they all use the same you know system. And it's super reliable, super easy to use, and it's like it's still there. We're still using it today, and that even goes for concert percussion and concert toms and things like that. So um, that's an important part of this is you, you, you know, you'll notice some other companies too, they'll hire a designer – and they'll build something, and it's the coolest thing you've ever seen, but there's no common part. There's no common place for it anywhere else in the lineup. So now anything that you have that's maybe a couple of years old, really you're not going to be able to find parts for after a while, and it's, it's going to be kind of frustrating, right? So um, that's part of that consistency that I think people overlook a lot of times with Yamaha as well. So, But gotcha. hopefully that gives you some good ideas of what we do at shows and things like that. It's it's really trying to you know help build those relationships and – and share what we think is unique about what we do. Let's back up. So you tell me where where you grew up and you know tell me a little bit about whether you had any family members who ended up getting in the arts. I know we kind of touched on that like very, very beginning, and then like how you first got involved with percussion. I, I grew up just outside of Madison, Wisconsin, and um, we uh, my my dad had marched in the Madison Scouts mm. in the sixties. And uh, he would um, take me out to uh, drum corps shows. Uh, M- Madison would host DCI finals, you know, in the 80s. I remember distinctly 80, I think 85, 86, and 87 were in Yamaha, I think three years in a row. So we went out there and we'd see the drum corps shows. And, I, you know, I was young. I, I wasn't super engaged with it. But I do remember the Bridgman, VK. And I was, I think there was one year I was kind of bored with the Scouts show. I think it was an American in Paris, which is actually a cool show now when I watch it. But back then it was just like, this isn't, you know, there's no raincoats out there. What is this? You know, so I remember being around it. And then again, um, a good friend of mine in high school, Jeff, he started marching the Junior Scouts, and I tried out for the Junior Scouts, and I they wanted me to play tenors, and I was like, man, I don't know if I want to carry all that stuff around all summer. I want to be a rock star. I want to be a drum set player. And my parents had gotten me a drum set, a used kit. I was banging on these uh, boxes. We had these plastic boxes in my house with Tinker Toys. I would play. Um, I grew up when MTV just came out, right? So MTV comes on, and there's Stuart Copeland with this traditional thing, and you've got uh, oh gosh, Alex Van Halen. He's lighting the gong on fire. I mean, I'm just like I want to be a rock star, you know. And this is that's where I kind of just I want to be a drummer. Yeah. And so my parents bought me a drum set, and I would, you know, bash away in the basement, Def Leppard, the whole thing. And, you know, I played a records. Of course, they would skip when you play drum sets and all that kind of stuff. So right. I grew up with that. And, and my parents, luckily, I now was an only kid, but, you know, my parents allowed me that space to practice. And then when I got older, I would come home from school and just play because I was the only one there. And then, you know, do my homework when my folks got home and all that kind of stuff. So that was kind of my first entry into it. And then after I tried out for the Junior Scouts, I kind of went out to a few drum corps shows with my friend Jeff. And uh, I was checking out the Scouts in the 90s. And then finally, I started marching. um, uh, That was, well, going back to my dad, you know, of course, it was the Scouts were the only place I'd really want to march, right? Because he was a Scout. And so I tried out for the Scouts. And in 90... 
93, I guess it was the, the winter of 92, but in 93, I tried out for the scouts and, um, I didn't make it. I was like one of the last guys cut. And you know, I wasn't, I didn't have the chops. I really had no business being trying out for snare drum. I mean, I was like, um, oh my gosh, I'm sure I, it would be a good video to go back and watch like how terrible that audition was. But, um, I didn't make it. And then Scott Stewart, who was a director at the time, called me like in December or something like that and said, hey, there's somebody who's quit and we we would like for you to join the core if you're interested. And I was like, sure. He's like, well, do you want to check with anyone? I was like, no, I, I'm going to do it. Like, <laughs> you did you, you did one of these. You go, let me check my schedule. I'm clear. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. I wasn't playing any card whatsoever. Right, right. I was just like, okay. Yeah. You know, I was like, just tell me what I owe and, you know, right. yeah. like, I'll figure, you know, I'll ask my parents if I can borrow some cash, you know? Yeah. And, um, of course that was a pretty cool moment in my life. I didn't really know what I was in for. I wasn't great at marching. I ended up on symbols. Um, they just had a symbol spot open and I was, I, I, of course now I was living in, in Minnesota going to school. <laughs> so I was five hours away. I had to drive into there and, and there's a couple of buddies that I went to school with that actually marched the scouts. So it was, it was cool. And it was one of the most amazing things in my career because I just, I had to get out of my shell. You know, I wasn't comfortable being there. I wasn't great at marching. Um, and I really figured out a lot. And, and the, the core taught me so many things, you know, being on tour and being on a road. And of course it's an all male core at the time. So that was a whole nother like dynamic. And, um, some of the people I've met and the diversity that we had in the core. I mean, back when I was in drum corps, there was a lot of kids that were just, um, being on the road with the drum corps was the best place they could be. You know, and I'm proud to say that because we, you know, there was a few times we'd have to take the car and go pick somebody up in the neighborhood kind of thing and, and, and drag them over to rehearsal and just say, hey, just, you know, hang out here tonight, whatever. And uh, it was different back then. But I still look at us as a community. Um, and and the, the guys I got to march with was just, you know, I'm still friends with them today. Right. You know, and, and just so many relationships. But to that point, it just changed my life. I wanted to be involved with music. And so, um, yeah extremely fortunate to be able to do that and take a couple summers off and um, still go to school and figure out how to kind of get my way through college and all that kind of stuff too. But when I got to college, I, I had kind of decided the music business thing was very cool. I had an instructor that was was teaching theory and he was an ex-Marine. You know, he was this, <laughs> I, don't know how, I don't know how I got this guy, but he was, you know, he, he would look at me and he's one of those people in your life. You kind of go, gosh, what would I do if I didn't have this guy just really busting my rear he was like, Joel, you're terrible theory. You're a drummer. You don't even know that notes go up and down. You're just a, you know, because I was, I was, I was just a drum set guy. It wasn't, notes started going up and down. I was like, oh, you know, rhythms I was better at. I wasn't great at reading music ever, but he was just the first guy to say to me, I am going to pick on you every time I have a question and you're going to get it right. And that was the person that just made me realize that, you know, I couldn't um, just get by, you know, and I had to be good. And I started to really appreciate music for what it was and start to learn so much more. Um, so, yeah, that that was that kind of moment of awakening of just kind of like, yeah, I want to be involved with this. And I, I want to do what it takes to be involved with it, not just play drums passively, you know, just have fun with it. I, I need to study and I need to work on it. So. Yeah. That was kind of my career at a young age. Uh, my mom played piano. My dad, of course, was a drummer. Um, unfortunately, he didn't really drum much after, um, after he went into Vietnam and was injured and couldn't couldn't mm -hmm. drum a whole lot anymore after that. But um, he was, I think, he was always proud of the fact that I could go into the Scouts and we could have that. You know, it was a pretty proud moment. And and being able to work with the Scouts now is 
Um, I remember, I think they celebrated their 75th anniversary or I forget what year it was, but I went out to Madison and handed them a drum and it was just one of those things, just wanted to say how much this meant to me to be a part of this, you know, and I'm still being able to work with it. How, how crazy is that, you know, uh, through Yamaha. So that is a, um, something I, I just can never take for granted that, that we're fortunate enough to have that group with our, our organization. I still get to work with them and hang out with them. So, um, but yeah, that, that was kind of my influence on music. And I think the MTV thing is much like YouTube now, you know, when I look at my kids and how much they're influenced by seeing people game online and do all those other things, it's like, that's the, almost the MTV generation of, of my generation. And, um, I was too late for the Beatles. I'd watch a lot of these heroes, the, the Hendrix and the Led Zeppelins and all these great, great musicians. They were passing on. You know, they weren't. They, I was just on the tail end of all that cool stuff. And then MTV just brought to light, like, here's what musicians look like in these cool videos and just kind of being able to play. Um, it's just very fortunate to have that, you know, because I think if I would have missed that, it would have been different, right? Um, and then my parents just making me, of course, forcing me to take piano lessons at some point. I wasn't really excited about it, but that that gave me some knowledge of percussion and, and Western music, if you will. So when I when I got to college, I decided with Lecklier, who was that teacher that was teaching me um, music theory at the time, he was like, Joel, you'd be the perfect candidate for the music business program because you really like the stuff and you know it. And so he was the one that really kind of turned me on to that. So I went from kind of just wanting to be a musician or a teacher or something to um, actually being in the music business side of it, seeing that there was opportunity out there, whether it was the record at the time, the record business and, uh, you know, production music, music, you know, um, all these different events that people host. And, and I got into the manufacturing side then through that internship through Yamaha, which was, um, I think people sometimes think again, when you ask, what are you going to do with music? There's so many other jobs, you know, of teaching and administration and all these cool things that you could be involved with music and not directly be a performer. I think people forget that. I think it's important to mention that because I didn't think there was anything else you could do. And I, I've made a living out of being a drummer, which oddly enough, is, um, sometimes feel like I got away with it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but you, you know, as an educator too, I, I did teach a couple of drum lines and I started to get my chops up with that. And I just wasn't a very good educator. Mm -hmm. Um, I just wasn't for me. And I, I think I'm fortunate to have found that out that I didn't really like that. And the music thing was another outlet for me in terms of the business. So that's, uh, if that, maybe gives any of your listeners some insight to why I got involved with this and why I still stick with it. Um, one is because I was passionate about music, but then I was also found a, a, a niche for me to kind of still be involved, but um, do well, something that maybe I'm better at. I'm just because you, you brought it up, but what, what did you find was the, the, the particular challenge with the, um, with the education, with the drumline thing that, that maybe didn't click or you didn't feel as passionate about it. What was the, what kind of, set you that maybe this isn't the way I, I should try to do this? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. But no, no. I, I, I think the band wasn't quite as as passionate as maybe I was. You know, I'd come from drum corps and that was not a good dynamic to go and teach a high school band. Sure. You know, just, um, 
Uh, but, you know, even in college, even the college drumline wasn't taking it all that, you know, I mean, it was a college drumline. We had a lot of fun and it was a great drumline to be a part of, but it wasn't certainly like, you know, we're, hey, let's be clean today. You know, it was like, yeah, we played well together, but we weren't um, spotless or anything like that. So, yeah, I, I think that was part of it. I think the educator that was there was kind of a little bit burned out um, themselves, too. And so then it just it kind of reflected on the kids and, and it just wasn't a great experience. Now, my maturity level, uh, I help my kids uh, with coaching, you know, rec league athletics, you know, and, and all these things that my kids are involved with now. And I, I find myself to be much more positioned. I love being around that and helping people, you know, know what I know, right. You know, and, yeah. and in marketing, I feel that's the same thing I'm trying to do is just share what I know about Yamaha. Like, Hey, this is so cool. You got to check this out. Like, like, look at how we did this. Um, but yeah, as an educator or, or, or now coaching, maybe some of these, you know, it's just rec league. I'm not, you know, any, uh, fancy coach or anything, but now I, I can have a better appreciation to having maybe my own kids and doing that. So that's a little bit different. I don't think it was very mature back then. Um, and not that I could be expected to, I was, I was young, but at the same time, maybe the experience with that particular band wasn't so positive and that, that didn't, didn't help. But when I got into the nuts and bolts, like I just love gear, you know, and I, I'm, I'm a marketing guy. That's yeah. what my job is. But if you ask me what I love about, you know, <laughs> take any Yamaha product that's at least percussion or drums at this point, I can tell you why I love it mm. and why I love that nut and bolt and why I think it's genius that we did this with this mounting system and that, that washer is perfectly placed, you know, all mm. that kind of stuff. I'm that guy. And I've always have kind of been, in fact, I remember this is a, this is another story and I'm going to bring up another brand by accident here, but, uh, don't tell my boss, but <laughs> I remember going to the drum corps show when I was a kid and everybody was playing the, um, it starts with an L and ends with a wig. Everybody was playing that brand, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and it was just, they were the, the you know, of course, that all I saw was people playing that brand too on MTV and stuff like that. Yeah. And I remember a, a kid, uh, he won the solo uh, DCI championship snare drum competition thing or whatever. And there was a person from that company with the jacket and they had the logo on it. I always thought it was such a cool logo mm -hmm. as a kid, right? And meeting, meeting um, you know, the family, meeting some of those people at the show, you just kind of go, gosh, this is this is Mr. Ludwig. You know, that's pretty right. cool. I'm just going to say it, right? You know, yeah, yeah. Cool. yeah of course. Um, we, there was a Torosuku Yamaha, but you're just not really going to meet the Yamaha family, right? I'm just a representative of the company and, and or, or, or when Vic Firth would go around to the drum companies, right? You'd meet Vic, you know? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Or, His or, name's or, on the sticks. I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, oh, person it's like yeah remo belly yeah like, yeah yeah on. you know <laughs> people don't realize that so that that's such a cool thing but i saw him walk out there and it was just a representative of the company it wasn't one of the um the, the family members but this person the representative from that brand walks out and hands that trophy to that that kid and uh, um i was like man that would be cool wouldn't it just to walk out there and be like you're the best here you go congratulations and so i don't know something inside of me was just like i want to do that for some reason i didn't want to be the guy marching the snare drum right. i want to be the guy handing out the trophy i don't know what kind of that's kind of maybe not maybe we shouldn't share this but anyways uh i just something went off inside of me that was like that would be cool you know i love gear you know and that's that's never going to change uh you know i've gotten into cameras a little bit and you get into some some of this other stuff recording stuff and um, you know, our DTX drum kits, you can start to really get into the weeds of how cool they are and what they can do. But at the end of the day, it's just, um, I, I dig this stuff. 
you know, and um, that is never, you know, as much as I am a marketing person and that's what I have to work on. uh, That's my, some of my goals and KPIs and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's, uh, you know, I just, I kind of like the nuts and bolts that make up a Yamaha and I, I owned some other gear for years and I came to Yamaha and I started playing those drum sets and I was just like, why don't my drum sets sound like this? It was, it was really eye opening. And you would think that a company, you know, let's, let's call it what it is. You know, it's a motorcycle and piano company, right? You know, mm-hmm. that's the way people perceive it or that's right. what they, you know, if I wear a Yamaha jacket, I probably get a couple questions once in a while about people's YZ250, which is a, you know, a dirt bike, you know, and I'm like, right. yeah, man, they're awesome. And they are, they're super cool, but I don't really work with them. Right. Um, but to, to see the care and the, the love that goes into making these musical instruments, um, something that I think is completely innovative about Yamaha and, and hopefully helpful to to your audience is, is the um, the shared resources of Yamaha. So um, we talk about this a lot that, you know, we have a motors division and we have this music division. And of course the, the music division started in 1887 and then the motors was really kind of born out in, in 1955 because of some of the, after the war, we had some of these machines, you know? And so they started selling, you know, the red dragon, the motorbike. And, and uh, we started to develop that um, after, because we had this manufacturing from after, you know, after all the conflicts and everything, um, much like many Japanese companies, you know, your, your other brands out there, they have this manufacturing. Um, so the motors was really born out of that. And then when we started to get into the metallurgy for the motors and this, this, these types of things that we pioneered of, of the, the, the chrome plating that's used on a motorcycle is the same process that we're using on a cymbal stand because it's durable. It holds up. The alloys, like you talk about making a cheap music stand and then, it, you know, you, you, you try and tighten the... Uh, uh, the, the wing nut on it and all of a sudden the stand is, you know, the, the tube is all distorted. <laughs> it's like yeah. Yamaha doesn't do that because it's good stuff. There's a certain alloy that we use because it's the best stuff. Um, it's not cheap, but it's right. still amazing stuff. Um, when we talk about the Acoustalon Marimba, this is a material that's fiberglass reinforced plastic. That's what FRP stands for. And that's a little bit different than just taking fiberglass. It's actually putting the fiber fiberglass basically and mixing it with plastic so it's safer. You know, it doesn't have, uh, you know, it's not exposed fiberglass. Like if you've ever had expired, exposed fiberglass, it's kind of dangerous. It's, yeah. You know, it's like these little splinters and stuff. Right. Um, we mix that together and extrude that through this machine. And it must be 50 feet long. It's crazy. It heats it up, cools it down, heats it up, cools it down. And then we put those, uh, there's there's rods. That's where the holes, the sonic tone holes, that's how the, they're, they're bored into the material as we extrude the material like think about a extrusion is like a play-doh machine so if you take play-doh and you squeeze it out it makes a star we're doing the same thing with the Kustalon. Um, but that frp material was developed with the bow and arrows uh division of yamaha they were making uh bows and some olympians actually won with yamaha bows in the archery division um but then we were also making skis they made some tennis rackets out of there's all sorts of our, our we had bathtubs uh, years ago we were making bathtubs out of frp because it was safe you know if, if anything cracked it wasn't going to hurt someone um, but th- that's how we made FRP into fiberglass reinforced plastic bars in the Acoustalon. And the reason that we have those holes that are in the material um, is because that dries out the sound. It's like the porosity of wood. You know, if you ever take some synthetic uh, marimba bars that, that, that are just glassy sounding, of course, they sustain forever and they don't really sound like a marimba. Well, Yamaha wanted to make something that sounded more like a marimba because it is a drier 
uh, less sustaining type of sound. So that's why they came up with this. The innovation was, one, we were able to share a resource from some other division that was making some pretty cool material that was safe, super durable. But at the same time, when they started making bars out of it, they're like, wow, this stuff sounds really good compared to, you know, just something that's made out of fiberglass. When we make a timpani bowl, it looks like a huge ride cymbal when it starts, and then it's um, you have to heat it up and then just kind of take this blowtorch to it and heat, the, heat it up so you can actually bend the metal so you're not changing the consistency of those molecules. Uh, we have that, of course, because of the horns. We've been doing that to horns forever. You know, kneeling is not a new process, but the fact that we have that shared resource and knowledge – um, and then the other one that I always love to tell people about, because I think this is just one of the coolest things ever, is that we have a vintage finish that we use on our drum sets. And we developed this actually for clarinet barrels. Clarinet barrels have to go through a lot of moisture. But the problem is moisture, of, of course, can crack wood, and especially Grenadilla and all those kind of things. So they started using this vintage finish treatment on the inside of the clarinet barrels, which made them more moisture resistant, but also improved the resonance because it made it more solid. So we started putting that on the inside and outside of drum shells, and you had these drums that just had these sustains and these beautiful tones without having you know, 20 layers of lacquer or something like that or a wrap on it. And it was super durable, but at the same time, it improved the resonance. I mean, it just... Where to come up with that stuff? You know, you wouldn't find that with just somebody making drums, you know. So that's that's the innovation of Yamaha. I think a lot of manufacturers are trying to get that sound. You know, I, a lot of drum set companies, the way I look at it, they're always trying to achieve the sound they did in 1912, you know, which is cool. I, I get it. I mean, we used to use lead paint and all sorts of other stuff too, and that's not good. So <laughs> we've come a long ways, but the, the reality is I think the innovation Yamaha is trying to always improve that sound. And like we talked about, uh, you know, sound is a priority. You know, that's really what we're going for, a better sound. How do we make the sound better and, and make those instruments more accessible? So that shared resource between the motors and the music is something that I just, I, people look at the, you know, jack of all trades, master of none, right? You know, Yamaha does so much. How can they actually be good at drums? And you look at it, it's like, well, I, I, we've got so many resources between the different divisions of Yamaha. There's just some incredible things going on. So, and some of the prototypes you've seen, are some, there's some pretty cool things that are coming up that, that Yamaha is innovating because we, we understand that, Wood resources. <clears throat> We've talked about rosewood marimbas before. You know that's that's becoming scarce. It's hard um, to to come up with those. So Yamaha is working on some really cool things that will hopefully be able to use uh, more resources uh, or different resources to have you know um, sounds that that are what we want from the instrument as opposed to just making something synthetic so we, we don't have to use resources. It, it's it's pretty cool. Um, I'm hoping it's within my career here at Yamaha that all, <laughs> all this happens. You know, it takes us a while, but some of the testing we've heard is really positive. And, and again, part of the struggle we have in Yamaha is that there's so much research and development that goes into one product. Uh, it takes years. And it's just because um, the, the example I always use is that when we were redesigning the the recording custom drum set with Steve Gadd, it was it was a three, almost four-year process because we weren't just pulling the parts off the shelf we had used before. We weren't just using the same material and the same bearing edges. We actually studied what made recording custom great and how we could modernize that and make it a better instrument. And with Steve Gadd's ear, we were able to kind of hone in this sound that just, I mean, the, uh, it's one of the most dynamic drum kits you can play, and it's just amazing. But... 
really, if you just want to read, just, you know, we've made the parts before. We made recording custom in the 70s and we had a YD9000 in the, you know, we've done this before. Why don't we just do that? And it was like, no, 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 no. We have to make a better Yamaha. And it, it's really amazing how that process, as frustrating as sometimes that could be because we just want to make, you know, a new version of something, it takes a lot of time. And the, the thing that I always go back to is that it's a worldwide company. You, you can't just make something that's good for, um, you know, speed metal and have a different drum set for jazz and have a different drum set just for, you know, urban rock and roll or country or whatever. I mean, these drums have to speak to any genre of music and that includes percussion as well. Um, we look at the, some of the European brands, you know, the, the, the sounds are very dark and very European, but at, 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 at Yamaha, we feel that that can be changed with heads and, and implements. You know, we can darken out a sound, but the drum still has to be articulate. And so that's that's a very important part. And that goes back to our founding uh, grand person, Keiko Abe, of being able to, to help us. What's the importance of hearing all the notes and hearing them together? And how does that blend not only with percussion instruments, but then other acoustic instruments? Um, it even goes into the pianos division. There's, there's been people that have said to me, like, oh, yeah, you know, if you if you have a solo piano and you just put it on stage with a solo player, it's it's fine by itself. But as soon as you start putting in front of an orchestra, the Yamaha seems to blend so well because it, it's the way it's voiced. And it's like, really? Wow. Like, you know, I didn't even know that. So, I, you know, you're hearing those kind of things. You start to talk about, um, this goes into a whole other study, but the, the spectrum of sound, you know, what, what sound is that instrument creating and how does that blend with other instruments on the stage? It's a pretty incredible study. Uh, and um, I think our design team takes a lot of that in consideration that it's not just going to be played, you know, at a high school level. It's not just going to be played in Japan or just in the United States, but anywhere in the world. And that's a pretty cool thing, too, to, to realize. Uh, it's, it takes a lot for us to develop stuff. It takes us a long time. But when we come up with something, it's pretty darn good. So, you know, that's the, that's the other side that's kind of fun to work with this. When we finally do have a new one, it's like, wow, this is going to be awesome. So, <laughs> so. Well, I uh, finish out with a segment called Random Ask Questions. Oh. So. Um, is this a speed round? Do I have like. It's, it's, it's on the speeder. It's, it's on the speedier round. Yes. Uh, okay. okay. So this will be the Yamaha uh, related one. But um, what's the kind of the. Of all of the things that, that you would say was the, the biggest that are issues just like faced going forward. What's the number one. Biggest issue gets under your skin. It drives you the most nuts. It, you know, in terms of your like the the going forward. I want us as as a community, as people, to really embrace it. And I think it's it's such an optional thing. Uh, you know, we're not all fortunate to live in communities that have big music programs. And right. That's the other thing too. Yeah. I, that's the thing that I want us to focus on. Music is good for the soul. There's no question about it. And there, there's a unique thing that happens with human beings. Uh, Yamaha is actually doing studies with a, a, a group on, on Alzheimer's, you know, how people can light up hearing music from their generation and, yeah. and unraveling the brain. I think music education is something that we, we need to accept the fact that music is not just an accessory to our lives, but rather an importance. Yeah. Gotcha. Great. All right. So here are some of the other questions. They will go in um, no particular order. Uh, has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? <laughs> I think so, some people have dressed up at me in Halloween. Oh, yeah? Yamaha shirt. It's really just wear the Yamaha shirt and go like, 
I can't believe we're here. You know, that's oh, <laughs> I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Does your, fact, do your kids do impressions of you? They have to at this point, right? They laugh at me. Uh, okay. I'm a, I'm a, you know, I, sh- I think I miss my calling as like a cartoon voiceover character. Oh, I, I see. Yeah. I probably have that going on more than I do a, a marketing guy. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> um, but I, I will say this. We were in Japan and we, we filmed these, these factory tours. Mm-hmm. And so, um, uh, very proud of him. We did it with Brett Kuhn. Uh, you know, it, it was a great experience. And um, one of the scenes, I'm like, I, th- I don't know if it's Brett or myself, but we're we're in the drum factory, and here's here's all this wood just sitting around. You know, and we're just kind of like, I can't believe we're here. And then uh, I went to Japan shortly after that video, and and the, one of the guys in Japan that we work with is probably a marketing or a designer or something. I was like, ah, oh, Joel son. I can't believe we're here, you know, like, he's, I know, you know, and I'm like, you know, that was, that became kind of my, uh, meme, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. So like, Oh, this yeah. is cool. so I am a little bit of a cartoon character, uh, in Japan and, and, uh, uh not anime, like a, a good cartoon character, just kind of a, you know, a funny one, maybe a Homer Simpson type uh, mm. in Japan, but, um, yeah. So <laughs> maybe that's the best impersonation I've ever had is a, I can't believe we're here. Mm-hmm. Uh, from I don't even know who it was in Japan. I can't even tell you who it was, but it was it, it made me laugh. So there you go. Nice. Well, you mentioned clothing. So what is the most impractical item of clothing you own? Well, well, with uh, <laughs> with the current pandemic, I, I I think jeans are becoming impractical. For me. Oh yeah. Uh, I um, I you know I'm wearing my corporate shorts and flip flops every day now. So yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not so hip on the, uh, I, my, my, I, I recently got a shirt and I think it's a really cool looking shirt, but it's this bright yellow, like, like, and so I was, I was going across to go get the school, the kids from school and the crossing guard looks at me and goes like, Hey, you have my vest on. Nice. <laughs> so this bright yellow shirt polo that I have is, is probably the most impractical, but if I want to get noticed or just maybe not hit by a car, I'll be good. You know? Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. It actually, that's actually functional. It actually, yeah. It still works. Yes. It still works. Uh, But yeah, that's about all I can say without going too deep. Gotcha. All right. Fair enough. Okay. What is a great movie and what is a terrible movie? I've always appreciated, and I, I don't want to get into this too much, but uh, I've always appreciated The Godfather. I oh, sure. Yeah. That is like. I mean the the tension and everything that they build into that, and, mm-hmm. and um, it still yeah. works. I mean that's the thing. It's made. It's almost fifty years now, and it still it still connects. It, and somebody was pointing a view up of the cinematography of the whole thing, and I I can't even speak like you know I've taken film classes and I I can you know okay uh, Citizen Kane and the whole thing I get it I get right it. right. Um, but I just appreciate. There's so much going on there. And, yeah. and, and actually, maybe the actors now looking so young, too, is just something I just – I marvel at that. Two and three, I kind of get, you know, all right. You know, it, it's – I get three. They had to have a, a big, you know, thing, I guess. But one is just one of those things. Like you just watch that and you go every time. I just maybe find new things about it and, yeah. and, and more, more – uh, Oh, you know, even the Simpsons kind of have the, you know, the horse, you know, Lisa wakes up with the horse in right, the right. one day and you're like, oh, that's, the, you know, that's the Godfather. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's not quite as cute as that. But uh, yeah, anyway, so uh, I don't know. Just that's the one that sticks out. Sure. Terrible movies. I, I, I'm a, I'm one of those people that I love watching movies again for some reason. Mm-hmm. You know, seeing new movies isn't always what I'm looking for. Um, 
I think some of the, you know what, I will put on the other top of my list, and I'm, I just, for some reason, I've always gotten into the, like if Terminator 2 is playing somewhere, I will just watch it. All right, yeah, it's on. You flip it channels, I, it's, you're I can there. go the other way and say the original Terminator is probably one, <laughs> just not a great acting debut. Or, yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. yes, I know but, what you mean. I'm always sucked in. I'm always yeah. sucked in. Um, I, you know, and I've, I've been to several movies with uh, maybe my significant other, my partner, my wife, you mm-hmm. know, that I just, I probably care not to talk about. But you know what? Right now, just seeing a movie with the family or just doing those kind of things, I, I don't even care what it is anymore. It's just being around and just, a movie is one of those things like when I when I do that with the family and I just, you know, I don't. It's we're together. We're watching yeah. something. It's good. Um, I've watched a lot of cartoons lately because I have younger kids, you know. So that's <laughs> right. <laughs> There's a couple of terrible ones out there, but I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. We'll just leave it to maybe Schwarzenegger is maybe on my top and my bottom of the list uh, in in many yeah. different ways. How's that? That works. Sure. Now, uh, what is your biggest kitchen mess up? Well, just being in there. Period. <laughs> oh, I see. Entering. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, I, yeah. I'm pretty good at doing breakfast. I can okay. get breakfast done and I can make that. But uh, yeah, I just stay out of there. And my wife does such a great job with that stuff and getting us on time. And I clean up. I'm on cleanup duty. Yeah, yeah. That probably, yeah. Uh, I, I will say that I things typically don't catch on fire. So I'm good, good. there. <laughs> I see. Yes. Like cereal and milk. Uh, not on fire. I got it. Yeah, no, no. It did, it did not. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Where is somewhere that you have not traveled to that you still want to get to? Well, uh, my, my family is European okay. and never been to Europe. What is, what's the origin of your last name? Uh, Tesloff is actually German. Okay. Uh, yeah. It, it's, it sounds kind of like Eastern German. Right. Yeah. I was gonna, yeah. Yeah. I get a lot of Russian uh, takes on it, but it is actually common in, in Germany, I guess. Too. Okay. Uh, but yeah, it's German. Uh, my, my other grandfather was, uh, English. So yeah, I've, I've never been And in traveling to Japan several times for work for Yamaha. Yeah. I'm fascinated by how different cultures create different architecture and different art and just, um, you know, um, different colors come into play. You know, it's just, a, <clears throat> I'm fascinated by Japan. It's such a beautiful place and amazing people. Um, I would love to see Europe and, and, the, and just the castles and just kind of those things like that are maybe I would understand more about my my culture and maybe even my own family. Sure, <laughs> yeah. Something. I I, I definitely – and it's interesting in Japan, you know, when, when you visit there and you see, um, you know, it's, there's a lot of people in a, not a lot of space. You start to understand like the, why we have created a silent violin. Why we have a silent guitar mm-hmm. or even DTX drums. It's like the, the, you can't sit there and play – you know, rock and roll music in, in some of these places because there's too many people living there and they right. respect one another yeah. and they make it work. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a culture of like, you know, you walk down the street in Tokyo and there's, there's a jewelry, you know, like out on the sidewalk where people can like browse it. You, you couldn't do that in New York city. You know? sure. So you have a, you know, again, just seeing that culture, I would love to travel to Europe and see that there are places in the United States I would love to go to. I have not, you know, the Wyoming's and, um, I don't even think I've I've been up to Oregon, but not Washington. Mm-hmm. So things like that too. I would love to see those parts of the United States. But um, yeah, Europe would be my number one. Do you have a sports fandom? I grew up in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. so um, Packers. I'm, I'm a Packer fan by religion, right? Um, by birth, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> by family, by birth. 
Right. You go to church, you have a cheese omelet, you watch the Packers. And, right. and um, when, when I was a kid, they were terrible. Yeah. They were, they were still trying to do smash mouth football and, you know, let's run the ball up the gut. And like, you know, obviously out in the, out in the West coast here, you know, they were, Walsh was figuring out how to throw short. Passes right. Yeah. Pretty cool. And I was like, guys, are we, you know, I remember Lynn Dickey yeah. was our quarterback and I visited Kansas state is where he went to school. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and um, Lynn Dickey, you know, I'm, I'm sure he was a fantastic quarterback, you know, from from some vantage point. But we didn't have a great team, and that's yeah. all sorts of challenges. But I went to Kansas State, and all of a sudden, I see on the the you know the stadium. I was like, Lynn Dickey came. <laughs> so I feel some connection there. Right. But um, yeah, you mean the guy, you mean the guy who who couldn't get us a winning season? That Lynn Dickey? Yeah. That guy who has is on your stadium? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he, I think one of his longest passes once to, was to himself. He hit a guy in the helmet. Oh, right, yeah, they kind of, yeah. he ran for like sixty or forty yards or something. And it was like that's the longest pass of the season. Yeah. And you're like, well, that's a bad sign right there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but nothing against him. I'm right, sure, sure he's a human being, and you know. Uh, but yeah, when when Brett Favre started to show up, and then um, I remember Reggie White changed the whole oh, team. Yeah. The whole dynamics of that team changed with Reggie, and then Brett coming in. And now we're fortunate to have the Jeopardy host. So right, of course. Um, and, and the, some of the questions he's getting is pretty. Oh, that was good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I can't, uh, I'm, I'm a shareholder. Um, oh, okay. I, if you go and watch a game there in the neighborhood and the people and the experience, um, it's not college game day, but the uh, game day, but there's, there's some of that atmosphere to it, which is just, you, you can't find that anywhere else. Uh, in, in, in my opinion, you can't find that anywhere else in the, in the NFL. Yeah. yeah. That, that would be my, that's my team. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't really root for baseball and basketball so much. Right. Um, hockey. I used to play hockey as a kid, but yeah, just you know, the Kings are fun to watch, and you know, the Ducks are. It's a good team. You know, I I kind of have migrated my team. I actually, when I was going to school, of course, the North Stars were still in Minnesota. Oh yeah, yeah. We went to one of the last games up there at at the Met, and uh, then they took off, and then I was just kind of like, well, now who do I root for? So yeah, I, yeah. I was, yeah. So, anyways, but I got gotcha. you. Yeah, that would be my team. Nice. Another long answer. I'm sorry. No, no, no. That was fine. Uh, it's kind of amazing that, you know, you're – first of all, that like – I mean I, I would agree with the – you know, it's like the most college-like atmosphere, yeah. uh, you know, probably in the NFL. But it's also like that town is mm-hmm. so unusual because it's mm-hmm. like – I know that there's like um, – I know that there's like a lot of housing that's like right like right around – like people live like literally across the street from from the stadium, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's true. It's like you go outside the parking lot and you are – you're literally like in the neighborhood. Yeah. It's across Vince Lombardi Avenue or whatever is the, right. there's these houses, you know, and yeah. just – people are outside and it doesn't matter what team you root for. You can show up at Lambeau Field and they will hand you a, a frothy beverage and a, a brat and you're good to go. It's, yeah, yeah. It's – yeah, and you 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 won't find that probably anywhere else because there's really no town the size of Green Bay that has right, an right. NFL team, you know. And I remember, you know, when I was a kid because they were struggling, they were playing in County Stadium, they were playing the baseball stadium, trying to bring in Milwaukee, which they had more population, right? But yeah, yeah. now to get a season, well, even to get a ticket to a game is is uh, yeah, you have to make a um, you have to know someone really. Is that that's how it happens now? And yeah. I'm proud of that. You know, that's yeah. a pretty cool thing. They still play outdoors too, which is uh, being in California now. I don't know if I could. I don't know if I could muster that. You know, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I'm still a proud fan, and uh, you know, it's it's one of those things. Like I, you know, you just kind of grow up with it. I, I'm not going to say I'm the most religious fan, or I know all the stats, but I read the books and had some yeah. fun. And yeah, it's 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 a pretty cool 
story. And, you know, Vince Lombardi, you know, you, you talk about people that, um, you know, even I, I can parallel that to Keikawabi, you know, just innovated things and made it what it is. Yeah. Um, it, it's some very cool parallels there to that game and, and, and kind of how some of our, our heritage as a company has been put together too. It's not just, it's people, you know, people yeah. make music, musical instruments don't make music. Uh, there, there are a few keyboards that do, but you know, for the most part, without a human being behind an instrument, it doesn't make a sound. It doesn't matter how great we make that instrument. If there's nobody to play it, doesn't matter and so that's what that's what i always kind of reflect upon is like how cool is it that we have this great stuff and we have people to play it so gotcha great all right what is your best non-life-threatening injury is it best what would be a best injury (laughs) well like you know it has a good story or like you know you got hurt but you're you recovered like relatively quickly like that something like that oh boy well, yeah. I mean, the only yeah, the only one I remember is you know when you get stitches as a kid. I oh, sure. Was baseball, and I had glasses on. And Chris, I was playing catcher, and the baseball kind of got me in the eye and mm. cut my head. And everybody who thought it was so cool they could see my the bone or something. And I was <laughs> like, yeah, this is great, guys. You know, I think I'm getting lightheaded. Right. Really <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's my only. Uh, that's probably my best one. I got yeah. injured a few times in hockey, but then yeah, it's just that's you know, expected. Yeah, back then a concussion didn't mean anything, you know. Right, right, yeah. I mean, you're not wrong. <laughs> right, and I was a drummer, so I think you know the the brain damage probably adds to more of the uh, mystique of what's going on here. So yeah, no, but um, yeah, that was that was never. Yeah, I never. You know, fortunately, yeah, I, I've been in a. Actually, one of the things I was in a car accident. This is a. Yeah, this is maybe not such a great story, but I was in a car accident. I had a jeep. And somebody had gotten under the wheel, like they were taking off from an intersection. They got in and the car like flipped and and I was in the car and I remember, so the the funny part of the story, which is not funny, but I was okay. And I'm kind of end up like, you know, kind of dangling in this car because it's upside down and landed on the windshield and the whole thing. And the first thing I remembered was, you know, my, my years of watching chips, you know, the television show, the, <laughs> show is that the car instantly, if there's ever an accident, the car blows up, right? right, you know, right. That's what happens. Yeah. The car crashes into a car in front of it. It's like, yeah, you know, of course. So I'm like, oh crap! I got to get out of here. Yeah. And then I went to turn the radio down, but of course the knob was upside down, so I turned it up, and then I had to turn it down. And then I just I I found a way to turn the ignition off and got out of the car. And people were like, oh my gosh, she's okay. I had glass in my hair, you know, because it's, it's sandy glass that they right. use. And I had my hair for months, really. But yeah, that was the the chips explosion thing was. <laughs> But I was never really injured. I had a yeah. couple of scrapes and cuts, but I wasn't uh, wasn't anything. And my my Yamaha snare stand ended up outside of the car because I still had my drums in the car mm-hmm. from the, the gig the night before. That was a whole other thing. But anyways, yeah. I was late to my math test. I'll just tell you that. So there you go. That's that's yeah. I, I see. I was wondering if the episode was going to be a, a shot of you going like this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was the, the, the freeze that, frame that was at the end of the episode. Yeah. Oh my gosh, the reruns are so funny. Well, now living in California, which. This is way off topic. Yeah. But living in California is like you see them driving down this freeway. Like, oh, that's the two ten. Like they, they were just, <laughs> yeah. but it was nothing out there. You know, they were just on this freeway with desert around them, and it was like, oh my gosh, there's. No-. I find it fascinating too watching. Uh, I think it's Adam Twelve or it's another police show, and they're driving downtown LA, and you're like, you're just like, oh my gosh, that's Sepulveda. Like you, you know what street they're on, but you're like, it looks nothing like that. Right. Yeah, you know, it's the '60s, right? It was, yeah, yeah. just little places everywhere. 
it's just it's I'm fascinated by that because California our our uh, history is so short, right? You know, a ton of stuff was built in the fifties and sixties, and then right. it just it started to explode after that. You know, but um, seeing a picture of Angel Stadium and it was nothing but orange groves all around it, and now it's just it you know it's just stuff everywhere. So it's yeah. just fascinating to me uh, that kind of like very short history that we have out here compared to like you know what you would be in the east coast right where there's, here's a building that's 10 million years old you know that you know abe lincoln sat in you know and the whole thing we just don't have that here you know so um yeah other than the missions which are kind of cool too to see all that stuff but yeah anyways, off topic sorry gotcha if you were to meet somebody and and they said what if it like some type of pop culture obscurity but something where if you met someone and they said oh i like this and you would go we're good. What's that? What's that for you? The Simpsons. Oh, okay. Yeah. I just, I've always adored that show and the, the parodies and the, just the, the idiocy and the whole almost factual, but a craziness of it. You know, how many things have they predicted? Right. Oh. You know, and then and you're like, that's nonsense. And then you go, Holy crap. They predicted that. Yeah. You know? um, that's the one. I, I mean, and I can spout off episodes. Seinfeld's another one, you know. Like mm. I just, yeah, yeah, you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, I can't I, all the things I can't say right now, right? You know, but just you, you, you spout off that one thing in that episode, and that's just where, like, okay, we'll be okay, you know, we'll be fine. <laughs> um, uh, but that that is the yeah, The Simpsons or Seinfeld. I would just be, I feel right at home, and we could talk about stuff. But it's it, it's funny how that kind of stuff comes up too. I mean, if mm. you talk to somebody and I can, I found myself, this is another story and I got to share this. We were out in Midwest in DeKalb, Illinois. I ran, you know, we were driving around bringing parts to the drum corps in the Midwest at the time. They had DCM at the show. This is way back when Eric Turner was the uh, percussion intern that was with me at the time. He's now, I, he's, I love him to death. He's such a great guy. Well, I'm driving my car around. We drove over from Michigan. We're, we're delivering parts and doing the whole thing and going to see the show that night. Well, I, we had to deliver one more part and the car ran out of gas. And so up the road is this tollway, the 88, I think it is. And, and, and I was like, well, they've got to have gas there. They have cars. So I went up there and I started talking to this guy. And he's like, yeah, you know, we got, we can't give you gas. You know, this isn't a gas station. I'm like, well, can you just at least, you know, blah, blah, blah. And the guy's like, well, we run on diesel. You know, you're not, you can't just get out of here, you know. And then the, one of the guys in the shop was like, oh, you should, Harry, just take him down the road to the mobile station. It's only a mile up the road and just have him buy a gas can get, come back. You know, you can help him out. Like, we, we're just sitting around, you know. Yeah. So I get in the car with this guy or truck. It's a pickup truck and there's yeah. a bunch of shovels in the back and the whole thing. And like, you know, so just, so what do you do for the, you know, the, the uh, highway department, Illinois highway department or whatever it is. I say, uh, you know, we're here for cleanup. Oh, oh. <laughs> I'm like, you mean like the, he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like you know, something runs on the road and gets run over and we're out there and just making sure everything's, you know, not people aren't going to get hurt and the whole thing. And, and I started talking to this guy, and by the time we were done, I, you know, we were just having a great conversation. And it, it was at that point I realized I could talk to anybody. You know, I just, I just, I'm not. People wouldn't think of me as an introvert, but growing up as an only kid, I was kind of introverted. And then as I marched drum corps and just became more self-aware and just didn't really care, I guess <laughs> that became the point of like, well. I can talk to anybody, and that was the re that was the the point where we didn't talk about Seinfeld or Simpsons. But right. I, you know, if he would have brought that up, we would have been like best buddy. I mean, yeah, I would have yeah. been emailing him, "Hey, man, how you doing this year? You know, right, right. Like, how's cleanup going? You know, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's just kind of the thing you learn about yourself. You know, it's just I always share that story because it was just so like, and I got gas. I bought a gas can, got gas in the car, we delivered the parts, and went to the show that night, and everything was great. So it was my dumb 
you know, of course the car had distance to empty in it and I should have just looked at it, but I, that was dumb. <laughs> Anyways. But okay, then you don't, so, but then you, you don't know about a uh, crime scene cleanup or whatever. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, well, there were some interesting stories. I don't want to share too much cause it gets a little bit weird, but you know, it was just kind of like, so how often, you know, and I, I had questions cause I was like, Oh yeah, of course. You know, like, you know, and like, so if a police officer comes across something, he's like, oh no, it's our gig. You know, like they don't have to, they're, I mean, they might help move something, but they're, they're not responsible for cleaning. I'm like, okay, all right, cool. So got a whole rundown. So so pretty interesting gig. Gotcha. All right. What? Hey, he makes a living, you know, he's helping people. No no problem with that guy whatsoever. You know, I did people, people do what they got to do. So there you go. Awesome. All right. What's either... Uh, because you have been, uh, because you, you spend time playing drums, like touring drum set, right? I never really toured. We did a couple beer garden things and stuff like that back when I was in college. But yeah, I didn't, I didn't do any major tours, but I did play. Um, there's a guy that lives here in California. It's a friend of a friend. And he was like, Hey man, I got this gig in China. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is kind of like a, really? Yeah. <laughs> First of all, right? You know? And then he's like, I think it's going to be a really big gig. And my drummer, the drummer that was drumming for him, was, uh, she at the time didn't have a passport or something wasn't working out. So he was like, I need I need somebody to fill in. And I knew him from a church gig that I played or something. He would just play a couple of His name's Tom. He's a fabulous musician, super, super nice human being. And he's like, would you mind, you know, do you want to do, I'll pay for the airline ticket. We'll get you over there. We'll get some bread, you know, for doing it, whatever. And it's like, yeah, I, I guess, I guess. And I went and we played in this, uh, it was like a community college in China. And um, it was kind of like one of these things, like we're going to have it out in the soccer field. It's going to be a pretty big stage and it's going to be a pretty big deal. We expect a lot of people and the whole thing. And we didn't really have a lot of details, right? You know, we could look the college up on online and you could Google translate some like, what is this? And all this kind of, but it was very odd, right? And I was like, okay, cool. I'll, I'll do the gig. I trusted him. We did some rehearsals. He's a super nice guy. We get there. They, um, uh, uh, let's see, Jaiman airline or something like that. Never heard of this airline. Great airline. I mean, it was super nice and great food and the whole thing. Get on that. We fly over there. It's, I don't know, some ridiculous amount of time. And then we, we drive a car three hours inland to this place. And, uh, I can't even tell you where it was, honestly. Um, I had to look it up in my photos on the map. I have no idea. <laughs> so we go there and it's kind of rural. Like you're, you're, you're looking around and then there's this beautiful college in the middle of kind of nowhere. And uh, we get there and there's this huge stage with, I mean, they must've been 50 foot screens on either side, a huge screen. Like, I don't even know. It was the width of a, of like a soccer field screen behind the band. And then there's two huge screens outside. And then he's like, well, this is, this must be where we're playing. And, and I'm like, you know, I didn't, it could have been in a gymnasium for all I knew, right? So we go and we, they're treating us like royalty. We're Americans. You know, th- th- these these people in China just haven't seen uh, people from anywhere else in the world, it seems, right? Yeah. You know, so w- everywhere we go, we're getting looked at. And people are just like... And, and, and so much so that people would like be taking selfies of, you know, they would, they would be looking, taking selfies of themselves, but then they, you could see that we were in the background. They were just taking a, a picture of us. Crazy. We're like the Beatles all of a sudden, right? You know, so we play this gig. It happens to be 10,000 people show up to the soccer stadium for this gig. We're playing, we play our tunes. We have a great time. Uh, at the end of this gig, I'm signing autographs. Now I'll, I'll tell you, my autograph is not worth anything. And I, I, could sign a couple footballs and no one would know the difference maybe, but this, it was crazy and it was so much fun. 
and being an ambassador, you know, for somebody from the United States, they're just saying, hey, man, thanks for showing up and thanks for being here, shaking kids' hands, seeing people. This is obviously before the pandemic and everything, but what a cool experience. And that was probably my biggest claim to fame is going to China and playing a gig for one night, played an hour maybe, and um, spent, well, we spent more time in the plane than we did playing, right? You know? <laughs> Sure. And it was it was such a great experience because that's what I wanted to do my entire life, and and it was such a cool thing. And we were safe. Everybody was. Um, there was a chance where they they had to check our passports. You know, we were ready to do like sound check, and they wanted to see our passports. Well, they were back in the room, so we had to go and get. And they were um, these women, and a couple of guys were from the. I don't know, State Department. I don't know what you call it, but they were they were from the province, and they had to check our passports to make sure we were legit. And then at the end of it, these <laughs> at the end of it, they're checking our passports. And it's taking forever. We can't translate anything. The people that are helping us, their handlers or whatever, we're like, yeah, no, I know this girl. I actually went to school with this girl, so everything should be fine. You guys are cool. If if we were in real trouble, they said, if we were in real trouble, there'd be men, you know, with with lots of like, you know, big men here. <laughs> well, that's reassuring. Anyways, they kept looking at our passports, and the next thing you know, they're like, they're like, hey, can can we get a picture with you guys? <laughs> I think it was all a rouge. I think they were just wanted our pictures, you know, like, so it's like, sure, you know, but nice. I, so anyways, so it was, yeah, that, if you want to talk about gigs that were interesting, that's the only one I got. I mean, otherwise most of them were pretty, pretty forgetful, but we, I just, I love playing. I just, you know, when you go out and play music and you just, and especially drums for me, drum sets always been kind of that place where I've been able to perform. It's been a lot of fun. Um, I used to march in the Clippers drum line. Clippers here have a basketball team. You may, they are a professional team from what I hear. And uh, we used to we used to do a little drumline thing out on the court there. It was a ton, I had a ton of fun. That's the only marching gig that I can say was really you know outside a drum court. It was a ton of fun. But it was it was we had a lot of fun doing that. But I'm, I'm older now. I can't carrying around the big bass drum wasn't really for me too long. You know, but that was another fun gig that I had. But um, it's gotcha. just music, you know, bringing us together. You know, I think that's such a cool thing. And um, anytime I get to play. Uh, with a couple of people and just kind of get out and play, it reminds me of why I'm here. You know, I mean, I didn't sign up to work at Yamaha to do emails and spreadsheets because I love them. It's it's a skill I've acquired and work on. But when I go and play, it's like that's why I'm here. You know, I want I want to help other people experience that because that's fun. So, if that's any answering any question you have, gotcha. No, it's good. Sorry. Uh, You're like, dude, this was supposed to be like 15 minutes and you've been <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, if it, if it was only 15 minutes, I would have said so. Don't, uh, okay. My last question is, uh, Joel, what one piece of art, whether it's music, movies, books, podcasts, or YouTube clips, or theater, or visual art, if, you know, whatever art form you want to take, has impacted you the most recently? That's a really good question. I have to think about this. I haven't been out of the house a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's been a while. Sure. I don't know if it's one piece, but it's, uh, I'd have to say photography is one of those things that, that captivates my imagination. I am, and it even goes back to album covers and stuff like that. When you were a kid, you would look at this album cover and be like, you know what I mean? Like yeah. Mind, it was kind of race. I, I think there's there's certain photographs, and, and I can even say some things that I look back at in my family, and you're like, gosh, it was. I remember that day, you know, and those kind of things. Um, but yeah, I, I have to say, photography is one of those things. I just when people have that, um, you know, those iconic photos, um, 
uh, Rob Shanahan's a guy that takes pictures out here and has a lot of pictures of, of um, you know, rock stars. He's kind of the rock star photographer. And he, he has a book. And that, that is one of those mediums where you just go, um, there's, a, there's a picture in there of Eddie Van Halen. And uh, I always wanted to be Eddie Van Halen. Honestly, I wanted to be a guitar player because I thought it was so cool. And then I, I picked up drums and I just, I could do it, you know, it worked. But uh, the, the the picture of Eddie Van Halen and he's kind of turned around and, and Rob's shooting from this top and you can just see these people just like, yeah. And, and he's just like, he's got that, that, that grin on his face, man. Like yeah. I did it. I, I played music for a living, right? You know, it's just look at me. And it's just one of those things, like those things stick with me. Uh, I think photography is that one art form. I just, um, there's beautiful paintings and all sorts of cool stuff that we have, you know, that art pieces and I can appreciate, but I just think photography is that capture of things in time. And I just, it always um, captivates my imagination. You know, painting can capture, you know, I, I can think about things and see things too and appreciate all art forms. Really. I, I have an appreciation for so much, but I gotta say photography is the one. So I don't, I know that's not a picture, but that's just maybe an idea of what I think really captivates my like I look at something and I go, gosh, what was going on there? Like, what were they doing? Look at the set list or look at this thing. And, you know, you just, you kind of see stuff. Um, and, you know, we have access to pictures now so much. Like I look back at my phone and I go like, gosh, you know, the things that I wish, and there's good things. I don't have pictures of the past, but <laughs> mm -hmm. the things I wish I had pictures of, sure. you know? Um, so we're very fortunate to live in that day and age where we can capture some of that and reflect. You know? So yeah. gotcha. there you go. It was a pleasure getting to talk to Joel in this interview. I look forward to having our paths cross very soon in the near future. This week's rave is the classic 1996 film Secrets and Lies, starring Brenda Blethyn, Timothy Spall, and Marianne Jean Baptiste, and directed by Mike Lee. The Academy Awards were this past weekend. And while I did get to catch up on a number of those films in the past week, the film that really got to me this week was the rewatch of this movie that I hadn't seen since the late 1990s. I really liked it back then, and I liked it even more this time around. And it was particularly good to see again because it's now available for streaming. The director, Mike Lee, is well known among film audiences for not having a formal script, but for writing fully fleshed out characters that actors then work out on their own through stories and prepared scenes and ideas like that. The actors who work with him love it because it allows them to fully invest in characters and fit the scenes and the characters as necessary. The basic story in Secrets and Lies is that Marianne Jean Baptiste, a black actress nominated for a supporting actress in this role, plays an optometrist who, after attending her adopted mom's funeral, seeks out her birth mother, played by Brenda Blethyn, a white actress in a role nominated for Best Actress that year. The film plods along until Jean-Baptiste connects with Blethyn, a working-class person struggling in her work and family relationships. From that exact moment, around 55 minutes in or so, until the very end, the film builds and builds to an incredible climax. 
So why is this film so good? Well, one, the acting is incredible. Because all of the cast does this full inhabiting of their role, and everything is very natural and well-established. Two, there are some specific scenes that are tremendous, particularly the first scenes when Jean-Baptiste and Bledon meet and talk. And Bledon, in particular, starts to dig into these challenging memories she had buried for most of her adult life, partially because she is a white woman who had to leave her black child up for adoption in the 1960s. And three, and again, I'm really specific to the pacing, but the final scene and the encounter with all of the major characters at the end is done in the most natural and realistic setting it just hits you so hard. It is really well done, and I can tell you, if you've never seen it, check it out. And if you have, you really have to see it again. So, now streaming, check out Secrets and Lies. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast and Apple Podcasts, and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at petezambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at petesperkpod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then.